Good morning. I want to uh, two two very quick uh, quick items before we begin this morning. Um, I I want to add to our um, gospel partners in France. It's it's my omission for Jonathan. Um, so it's not on him, but I want to say they're no longer there, but Dave and Debbie Nunemaker uh, served the Lord in France for decades, and they're back in town with us. Their ministry is no longer focused on France, um, but now East Asia, and we're grateful for the partnership with, that we have with them as well, um, even as God has brought them back to be, to be here among us. So we're, we're grateful for their partnership in the gospel as well. And then I, Jonathan mentioned it um, just before he prayed, um, but uh, I'm so grateful that we as a body prioritize um, seeing pastors um, go uh, spend time with our gospel partners throughout, throughout the world. And uh, I know Drew and Mary Ellen are thankful for the opportunity that they have to be with, uh, with the Bixby's this morning and then next Sunday with the Nunamakers. And uh, I want to say thank you to you all as a congregation for making these kinds of things a priority um, that, we would, that we would set aside funds so that, um, so that we can serve our partners in this way, that we can partner with them in closer ways as we go spend time with them. So, so thank you all for that. This morning, we're going, to, we're going to take some time and look at Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And as we do this morning, we will consider, first of all, as we walk through this brief passage, James and John's question to Jesus, and then the response of the ten, and we'll follow that with the call of Jesus to them and then to us as well. And as we walk through this text together this morning, I believe that we will find that a life following Jesus is a life of humble self-denial and selfless sacrifice. Let's pray this morning before we jump in. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have together this morning around your word. We thank you that you have given us your word so that it would change us from the inside out. We pray that that would take place even today by the power and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives as, as we come ready to receive your word. God, use it in these ways this morning in our lives, we pray. In your son's name, amen. Before we get to our text this morning, specifically in Mark 10, I just want to take a few minutes to orient ourselves um, to the greater context here. Um, we have, uh, we don't, I don't have the, the privilege of of being in the middle of a series where we can just jump right in and continue. Uh, we're between series, and Drew is going to begin to take us through Thessalonians when he returns. Um, but until then, we're going to be in Mark just for this week. So I just want to give us, a, give us a picture of where we're going, what we are looking at. Um, Drew has... Drew, what's, the, what's the focus of the Gospel of Mark? Drew has put it this way before. Mark portrays Christ as the incontestable ruler of the world who nonetheless voluntarily suffers according to the will of God. That's the focus of Mark's account of the life of Christ. 
Mark is one of the Gospels, so obviously Jesus is central to this book. And there are three questions, if we were to look through the whole of the Gospel of Mark, there are three questions that are central to, um, to Jesus and to, the, to this Gospel that Mark provides answers for throughout it. Here are those three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what is he calling us to do? Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what is he calling us to do? So how does Mark answer these three questions throughout his gospel? The first question, who is Jesus? Mark's answer is crystal clear through the first, especially for the, through the first several chapters. And his answer is this, Jesus He is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-promised Savior King. We see this at the beginning of Mark's gospel. The Old Testament prophets, in the very first few verses of Mark, proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. And then John the Baptist, shortly after the Old Testament prophets, proclaims that Jesus is the Christ. And then even God the Father proclaims that Jesus is the Christ in chapter 1. And then, as we begin to see Jesus teach, we see that he teaches with power and authority, and not power and authority as a man, but power and authority as one who is the Christ, the Messiah. We see it in Jesus' own teaching. We see it in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5 and following as, as Jesus demonstrates his power to forgive sin, his power over sickness, his power over nature, and his power over even death. It's crystal clear who Jesus is if you read the Gospel of Mark. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-promised Savior King. The second question that Mark answers throughout his Gospel, why did he come? Mark answers this as he highlights in three consecutive chapters a specific teaching of Jesus. He highlights it here and other places, but we just look for a, we'll just look for a moment at chapters 8, 9, and 10 where Mark records uh, the words of Jesus to his disciples. Specifically, Mark 8, verse 31, he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then verse 32 says, And he said this plainly. There was no mistaking the teaching of Jesus. He said very similar things in the next two chapters as he taught this three times. So why did he come? He came to suffer to be rejected, to die, and to rise. And he did all of that in order that we might become the children of God. That's why Jesus came. The third question that Mark addresses is what is he calling us to do? Mark answers this this way. The call of Jesus on the life of all who would follow him is forsake all and follow me. Mark 8.34b, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Mark 9.35, and he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be servant of all, last of all, and servant of all. Mark 10.34, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In all of this, through the gospel of Mark, we begin to see a clear picture emerge. 
But this picture is upside down from what the 12 apostles were thinking. It's upside down from the dominant thought of the world in which they live, lived. And it's certainly upside down from the dominant thought of the world in which we live today. The picture that Jesus is beginning to paint is that greatness and glory, they don't come from pursuing them. They don't come from attempt to be number one. But instead, they come from a pursuit of humble self-denial and selfless sacrifice. That is completely upside down from the way that the world thinks. As I was thinking about these two competing paths, two songs came to mind. The first is a song by the script. It came out about 10 years ago. Here are some of the lyrics. Yeah, you can be the greatest. You can be the best. You can be the King Kong banging on your chest. You can beat the world. You can beat the war. You can talk to God, go banging on his door. You can throw your hands up. You can beat the clock. You can move a mountain. You can break rocks. Some will call it practice. Some will call it luck. But either way, you're going to go down. You're going in the history book, standing in the Hall of Fame, and the world's going to know your name because you burn with the brightest flame, and the world's going to know your name, and you'll be on the walls of the Hall of Fame. Now, that, that might be a song that you could find profit in playing in a pregame, pump yourself up before a big, big athletic competition, but it might not be the best theme song for your life. It might not be the best theme song for your life. But that's what the world preaches Go after greatness. Be noticed. Be somebody. Live so that people will know your name. Contrast that with these lyrics. Dream small. Don't buy the lie that you've got to do it all. Just let Jesus use you where you are one day at a time. Live well, loving God and others as yourself. Find little ways where only you can help. With his great love, a tiny rock can make a giant's fall. So dream small. One of the messages of this song is a call to go after greatness through humility, through denial of self, through sacrifice. What a contrast that we find in those two sets of lyrics. As we look at the Gospel of Mark and as we look specifically at our passage this morning, we begin to see um, these ideas emerge not just, not just in the Gospel, but here in our text. These ideas that focus our hearts on what true greatness actually is. If you don't have a Bible, you can find our passage on pages 846 and 847 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Um, but you can follow along as I read. It'll be on the screen uh, as well. Let's consider Mark 10, 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wow. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? That wouldn't have been my response. 
And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left, it's not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, not, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Notice, first of all, with me, James and John's question here in verses 35 through 40. As I mentioned before, our text comes on the heels of three times where Jesus clearly taught that he came to suffer, to be rejected, to die, and to rise again. There was no mistake about it. He said these things plainly. After teaching the first time in chapter 8, Peter pulls Jesus aside and he opens his big mouth and he inserts his foot as he rebukes Jesus for saying such things. And Jesus in turn rebukes Peter with those famous words, get behind me, Satan. Why does Jesus rebuke him? Jesus goes on to say that Peter was not setting his mind on the things of God but on the things of man. He was seeing the teachings of Jesus through the lens of the eyes of the world and not of God. After the second time that he taught these things plainly in chapter 9, as they traveled down the road to Capernaum, the 12 apostles filled their time with what? With arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Stop and think about that for just a minute. They were in the presence of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior King. And they got caught up in an argument about which one of them was the goat. Which one of them was the greatest of all time. Imagine being in the same train car with C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and proceeding to argue with your friends about which one of you was the best writer. Imagine going to the All-Star game and sitting next to Michael Jordan and LeBron James and arguing with your friends which one of you was the best basketball player. <laughs> kind of silly. The twelve, they all showed that they were still seeing the teachings of Jesus through the lens of the world and not through the lens of God. They were seeing things in the wrong way. They were seeing them upside down. But before we jump on them too quickly, we would be wise to stop and think of how quickly we can get, off, get caught up in the same kind of self-serving ways. They still didn't get it. And so often we act like we don't get it. But Jesus, he teaches them a third time that he came to suffer, to be rejected, to die and arise. And maybe after the third time they get it? Nope. At least it doesn't appear so. 
Enter James and John into this story. They came in with all the boldness and the thunder of Peter, who previously stuck his foot in his mouth. Theirs was an audacious, bold, ignorant, ambitious, self-seeking request. They came to Jesus asking a favor. At times, I've set it, set it up this way when I've wanted to ask a favor of someone. I, I, I'll come to someone and I'll say, hey, have I got a deal for you? And then I proceed to ask them their fa- the favor. And really, it's not a deal for them. It's a deal for me. And that's exactly what James and John were saying. Jesus, have we got a deal for you? And it's a really good deal for us. It was like they saw Jesus as a genie in the bottle when they said, we want you to do whatever we asked. They were bold. They asked to occupy the seats on his right and on his left as he ruled in the kingdom. These were places of great prominence, places of honor and authority. And the 12 had just been arguing about who was the greatest, who was going to get spots like this. And James and John, they were ready to stake their claim on that, that title. They were ready to stake their claim on those places. And yet, it's interesting. Jesus' response, he doesn't rebuke them. He rebuked Peter when he said, get thee behind me, Satan. But he doesn't rebuke them. They had completely failed to understand him. They didn't understand when the kingdom would come or what it would actually be. And they definitely didn't understand the paradigm of the kingdom that stands in opposition to the paradigm of the present age. For in the kingdom of God, the way up is the pathway down. The road to glory is the way of the cross. Glory comes through lowliness, through sacrifice, through suffering. We even see this, as I was reminded yesterday at Dave Dickinson's memorial service in Revelation 5. Why is Jesus exalted? Why is he worshipped as the one who is worthy Because he was the lamb who was slain. He is worthy because he was slain. Three times Jesus taught clearly that this was his path. And they still didn't get it. How often are we like them? This past week, how have we lived like this? What self-serving choices did we make that clearly showed to everyone around us, everyone in the room, that we were the most important? Maybe we're more sophisticated than that. Uh, Maybe we weren't so bold as that, but instead we manipulated things so that we could come out on top and still have our hands clean. But in our hearts, we knew we were going after us being number one. Aren't you glad that so often God responds to us the same way he did here to James and John. He gently shepherded them, even when they were selfish knuckleheads, even when they just didn't get it. And he does that with us too, doesn't he? When I look at Jesus' response, I have so many sarcastic things I would have said. And yet Jesus gently shepherds them to help them see the truth. Let's take a minute and look more at the interaction between James, uh, Jesus with James and John here. Mark, Mark 10, 37, we'll read a few verses. 
And they said to him, grant us to sit on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and on my left, it is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. In Jesus' first response, yeah, I want to make sure I don't spill that all over my shoes. In Jesus' first response, he highlights that James and John, they really don't have a clue what they're asking. And then he goes on to use two pictures to describe uh, what is to come. A picture of a cup and of a baptism. The cup is pointing to God's wrath, God's judgment to be poured out on His Son for the sins of mankind. The baptism here, it's not pointing to a believer's baptism. Christ had already been baptized by John the Baptist. This baptism is pointing to a deep immersion into the suffering that was just around the corner, the suffering that was going to come, the suffering that must come before glory. The wrath of God towards sin, it had to be poured out on Jesus in order that he might, as verse 45 tells us, be a ransom for many. After speaking of the cup and the baptism, James and John say, yeah, we can do that. We, we got it. We're good. We, we, we can do this, Jesus. And then Jesus responds saying that he started first with, with a, maybe a rhetorical answer like, I don't think you guys get it. I'm not so sure you can. And then after they say, yes, we can do that, Jesus says, you know what? You will drink with me. You will be baptized with me. What's he saying here? He seems in the first one to indicate maybe, maybe they can't do it. Maybe, they, maybe they're incapable. But then he says, yes, you will. What's he, what's he getting at? Obviously, James and John, they were not called to be wrath-absorbing sacrifices for the sins of mankind because that is something that only Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, could do. They could, they could say they were wrath-absorbing sacrifices, but they would not be. Only Jesus Christ could be that. So what is he saying here? What is Jesus getting at? He's saying to them, if you follow me, you will not find a path of worldly greatness. It is completely upside down from what the world says. Instead, you will find a path that leads to sacrifice, a path that leads to persecution, a path that leads to probable death. That is what it looks like to follow me. That is what it looks like to follow me. A life of following Jesus is a life of humble self-denial and selfless sacrifice. Would, will you follow him? Will you follow him? Look with me secondly at the response of the 10 in verse 41. So after already having been caught up in an argument over who was the greatest in chapter 9, how did the other 10 respond? They were chill. They were humble. They were cool with this attempted coup by James and John, right? Not at all. Not at all. We see in verse 41 that they were indignant. They were ticked. 
they were annoyed. After all, each of them was gunning for the same spots. They, they wanted positions of greatness. They heard it, and they began to be indignant at James and John. When I think of this scene, I, I think of the college dorm room that was right across the hall from me in my freshman year of college. One of the guys in that room worked at KFC in town, and he regu- regularly closed the restaurant, and they regularly had extra left over. And he was a college freshman, and so he regularly volunteered to relieve KFC of all the extra chicken and fixings that were there. And so he would bring them home. Leonard Reinhardt would bring home all of this chicken. He'd bring it in bags. And there were guys that started to know Leonard's work schedule, like, okay, he's going to be home. He's going to be back to the dorm about now. And you can just imagine a dorm full of guys and, and you could see out the dorm of the window, you could see the welcome center, and you could see, because if he came after, after dorm lock, he'd have to check in at the welcome center, and you could see him drive his car all the way around, and you knew when Leonard was going to get to his room, so you knew when you needed to be there. He'd put the bag on the floor, the bag, bags on the floor of chicken and um, biscuits and whatever else that there was that was extra. Uh, at the end of the year, there, was actually, there were actually um, grease stains on the carpet of that dorm room. And I'm guessing they would still be there today if there was, car- if there was that same carpet in that dorm room. Uh, you can imagine the scene that would take place regularly. It was like vultures would descend on that room without fail in very short order. All of the Kentucky Fried Chicken would be gone. There were no manners. There was very little concern for the other guy. I'm hungry. It's late. The food, uh, the food uh, I didn't really enjoy it today. Uh, I hear that it's better than it used to be, but I didn't really enjoy it today. So I'm hungry. I want food. Just hungry college dudes going after greasy food with reckless abandon. All vying for their favorite cut of chicken. The disciples, they were all looking out for themselves. Far more than wanting to be the first to the chicken... They wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom. They still didn't get it. They didn't get that the kingdom of God in the kingdom of God, the pathway up is down. The road to glory is the way of the cross. Three times Jesus taught this clearly and they still didn't get it. How often are we like them? Dad, mom, it's It's pretty easy to look out for ourselves, isn't it? After all, we have a ready-made crew of children to do our bidding whenever we want. It's easy to be selfish as parents. It's easy to be concerned about our little kingdom. Husbands, it's pretty, pretty easy for us too, isn't it? After all, God gave us wives to take care of all the things around the house that we really don't want to do. That's why God gave us wives, right? Just kidding. If if you have siblings in the home, it's easy to position yourself to get what you want, to not be the one to take out the trash or clean up after dinner or whatever the task at hand might be to, to avoid it so that someone else can be the one to serve because I want to do something else. In the workplace, have you ever been caught up in using coworkers and conversations with them to advance your own agenda? Working the angle 
um, to be the one who gets the promotion, to be the one who gets the accolades, the recognition in the workplace. It is so easy for us to live and our focus to be the advancement of the kingdom of me. So easy to look out for ourselves, just like the 12 did. And living in that way, just like with the 12, it demonstrates in that moment that we just don't get it, that we're believing a lie. We're not seeing the world as God sees it. Because the life of following Jesus is not a life of going after self-promotion. It's not a life of going after all the chicken for me. It's a life of following Jesus with humble denial and selfless sacrifice. Third, consider with me the call of Jesus in verses 42 through 45. Here we have these words recorded. And Jesus came, called them, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great, one, great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In these words, we see Jesus' call to the twelve, and really his call to all that would be his disciples. His call is this, forsake all and follow my example. First, the call of Jesus is a call to forsake all. Another way we could put this simply is, don't seek to be first. Don't seek to be first. Now, I'm a, I'm a competitive person, and when you're in a game, when you're playing a game, whether it's on the athletic field or a board game, like you're under some kind of social contract where the goal is to win it. So I'm not saying just, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't, I don't get that. Some of you are like that. Some of you are like, I just want everyone to be happy. I don't care who wins. I don't get that. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, the goal of playing a game, yeah, you want to have fun and you want to interact with people, but the goal of the game is to dominate. I don't play risk with my sons so that I can be the first one to be obliterated from the map of the world. I play risk to, to, for world dominance, at least in our living room. So, there, there, like, in moments like that, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, there, there's a contract and a greed reason that you're doing something like that. Um, so saying don't seek to be first is not saying it's wrong to be competitive when you're in situations like that. But in life, my goal ought not to be that I be number one. I am called, you are called, if we would follow Jesus. We are called to forsake all. Jesus Puts it this way in Mark 8. Read, read this verse earlier, but I'll read it again. Mark 8, 34 and 35. And, call, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
your life. It has been given to you as a stewardship to be used for the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of self. Don't live in an insulated bubble. Don't bury your talent in the sand. Pick up your cross. Take a bold risk for the sake of the kingdom. Invest in your persnickety neighbor who always is worked up about something. And instead of being bothered by the time that he takes from you, invest in him with radical hospitality so that he can see and hear the truth of the gospel. Take your kids and and uproot your life. Take them away from family, grandma and grandpa, and go to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel to those who have not yet heard. Take risk. Your life is not your own. God calls us to deny ourselves. Give generously in ways that actually hurt so that others can go to the ends of the earth and proclaim the gospel. Spend your life in whatever way it is. Spend your life for the kingdom of God and not for the kingdom of self. Here Jesus says, deny yourself. Don't seek to be first. In Mark 9, he says this, starting in verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking them in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Here Jesus says, Be last. Be last. He uses the picture of a child as he picks him up into his arms. And he uses a not-just-for-kids illustration, using a kid. What's he getting at when he picks up this kid and he begins to talk? In a world where I'm pursuing greatness for me, what are people? They are tools to get what I want. They are obstacles to get around on my way to the top. But think about a child. A child, they have nothing to offer someone who's pursuing such worldly greatness. In their view, a child is insignificant. They don't have any influence. They, don't, they have so little to offer in return. If we live using others for self-promotion, then we have our reward. But it's not a lasting heavenly reward. Be last, Jesus says. Serve those who aren't tools for your own agenda. Serve the weak. Serve the child. Serve the naked. Serve the oppressed. Serve the homeless. Serve serve the widow. Serve the needy. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of true religion. And this stands in opposition to the way of the world. Greatness is someone serving another who has nothing to give in return. That is greatness. Serving someone else who has nothing to give in return. You know, it is so encouraging that we as a body prioritize partnerships with others in our community, others that serve the least among us. I thank God for our partnerships with Miracle Hill, with Lifeline, and with Piedmont Women's Center. But I I do think that there is some degree of a danger in such partnerships. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not announcing that we're going to stop partnering with them. 
But I think there's a danger. The danger is this, service by proxy. I give money, therefore, I don't have to get my hands dirty. We give and we let other people serve. Don't get me wrong, partnering financially is a necessity. It is a good partnership, and it is for the sake of the gospel. However, if there's a need that God puts in front of me, if there's a need that God puts in front of you, we dare not say, oh, Somebody else is going to do that. I've done enough already. Those partnerships, they're a great avenue for service, but by no means are they an exclusive avenue for our service. If we would be great in the kingdom of God, we must be people that open our eyes to the needs that are all around us everywhere. This world, our country, our city, your neighborhood, your home, These places are all full of needs. The question is, do we see them? We must have our eyes open, and then we must get our hands dirty. Jesus has said, deny yourself. Be last. Serve. And in our text here in chapter 10, verses 42 through 44, Jesus also says this, and Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Here Jesus says, be great, serve, don't seek to be first. Be great, serve. This is completely upside down from the way that the world views success. The world tells us to go be somebody, to go be in charge, to to lead people, to go rule people. And when we do, we will have others to serve us. But here Jesus is teaching us a different way. And this message is so needed in our world today. Even as, even as we consider what Jesus says here about authority, our culture uh, seems to be allergic to the idea of authority. On the whole, our culture has a negative view of it. And really, that shouldn't be surprising. First of all, we are sinners who have a bent in our own hearts to reject authority. And second, we have seen plenty of poor examples of authority of those around us. We can find those examples in society, in politics, in in our homes, and even in the church. But we cannot let poor examples of authority undermine the reality of God-given authorities that he has placed in our lives, in the church, and in the world Here, Jesus, he affirms the role of authority. It is a good thing. It's even a God-given thing. But it's to be be used well. It's to be used in a way that actually demonstrates that we understand the way God sees the world, that greatness is not going for being number one, but it's serving others. If we, if we have a view of authority that rejects authority, it's never a good thing. 
it's always to our detriment. Now, there are authorities that each one of us have had in our lives where that authority has been exercised poorly. But if, if your stance, if my stance towards authority is one to brush it off, to buck it, even though it's a God-given thing, it is always to our detriment, always. Here, Jesus paints for us a picture of what good authority should look like. We shouldn't act as those who lord their authority over others. Instead, those who have authority are called to exercise it. How? By serving others. After all, any authority that we are called to exercise, it is ambassadorial in nature. It is derived authority. It's on the behalf of another, and it's subservient to God's authority over our lives. It's ambassadorial in nature, and it's derived from the authority that God has over us. What does this mean for us? Fellow pastors, brother deacons that are here in this room, we are called to exercise any authority that we have by first taking up the towel and serving the body. Fellow husbands, the same with our wives. Parents, the same with your kids. Teachers, the same with your students. Bosses, the same with your employees. And on and on we could go. How do we exercise God-given authority? That's by taking up the towel, as Jesus did, and serving. That, that is the start of how we exercise biblical authority. The call of Jesus, it's clear. It is a call exactly opposite of the world. Don't seek to be first. Deny yourself. Be last. Be great by serving. We also find similar thoughts to this all throughout scriptures. I just want to highlight one other passage. John 12 tells us this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In all of this, we see that the call of Jesus is a call to forsake all. Don't seek to be first. Second, the call of Jesus is a call to follow his example. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This forsaking all, this not seeking to be first, where do we see it most greatly displayed? We see it in Jesus the Christ who came to give up his life as a ransom so that many might become the children of God, so that you and I might become the children of God. Just as we saw earlier that James and John were not called to be wrath-absorbing sacrifices for the sins of mankind, we are not called to give ourselves as a ransom for many. So how do we follow this example of Jesus? He gave his life as a ransom for many. There was a payment that was due. There was a great cost that must be paid. That's the idea of the ransom 
Now, don't hear me wrong in what I'm saying. I am not saying that we must, that, that, um, that we must pay something or that we must do something in order to experience the grace of God and the gospel. Salvation is a free gift from a gracious God. It is free 100%. But we cheapen the grace of God if we ignore the reality that following Jesus Christ will cost us. We cheapen it. Paul emphasizes that those who would follow Jesus will suffer with Jesus. In Philippians, he highlights that we share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. The call to the twelve and the call to all who would follow Jesus is to forsake all and follow his example. This is a road of humble self-denial and selfless sacrifice. It costs to leverage all that you have and all that you are where God has placed you so that somebody else will become more like Jesus. That costs. It costs time. It costs money. It costs our lives to live in that way, leveraging all that I have and all that I am where God has placed me so that someone else will become more like Jesus. That is costly but it's so worth it. And it's worth it even if no one else ever knows about it. After all, our goal is not to live so that the world will know our name or so that we will be put on the walls of the Hall of Fame. That's not our goal as followers of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, instead, let the words of Nicholas von Zinzendorf be our mantra. I was reminded of these words recently as I was talking with one of our gospel partners. He reminded me of them. Zinzendorf said this, preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. Don't believe the lies of this world that say that you can be number one, that you should go after being number one. You can be the greatest. You can be the best. Instead, Embrace the upside-down call of Jesus to forsake all and follow him. In considering James and John's question, the response of the ten and the call of Jesus, I believe we find that a life of following Jesus is a life of humble self-denial and selfless sacrifice. May God help us to live in such a way even this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for in it we learn of your Son. Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would would give us the strength, the power to live more and more each day like him. I pray that we would be a people who don't live for our own little kingdoms, but that we pour out our lives for yours. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.